Sponsor Dell Technologies wants you to consider open source network operating system Sonic. Find out more at DellTechnologies.com slash networking. Learn about Sonic at DellTechnologies.com slash networking. Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking. The domain name system is another one of those internet technologies which is mind-bogglingly ad hoc and casual and designed in a time when it wasn't anything like it was. If you thought TCP IP has managed to withstand the test of time or Ethernet or BGP, probably at a crowning achievement of our internet forebears is the domain name system, which is fundamentally the world's biggest and most successful database, is still work working. And even in spite of the fact that it is operated by people with a wide spectrum of competency, a wide spectrum of motivations, and a wide spectrum of, gov of political environments, business environments, and so forth. It's just an amazing thing that it actually works at all. Now, end users just want their domain names. The registrars make money from giving you a domain name and hosting that domain name and pointing it to DNS servers, and they want to make maximum money for minimum effort. And the whole ecosystem really just relies on goodwill between a small group of people, common interest, fairly narrow set of common interest, and best efforts of a very small group of people. Like much of the internet, the DNS operates on hopes, prayers, and a small group of people who can actually make it work. And one of the gaps in DNS has been, where do we abuse the DNS? Where do we abuse domain names? And what do we do about them? And up until now, companies have really had to basically engage law enforcement, who then go to a specific registrar and then make the case with court orders and so forth to actually do something about domain names. And a lot of abuse of domain names has actually been a very uh, unique one-off system. And so my guest today is Graham Button. He is the director of the DNS Abuse Institute. Now, the DNS Abuse Institute is an emerging effort from ICANN talking about how we can improve the handling of these domain names, how we can make more of it. And so I'll be very interested to hear how he's going to talk. So welcome to the podcast, Graham. Let's start off by talking about probably what is the first thing that we need to talk about is what is DNS abuse? How do we abuse domain names? Right. So I'm going to correct you briefly on that intro, though, which was the DNS Abuse Institute is uh, does not come you know, from the ICANN organization. Uh, I will say it is quite centered around the ICANN community of registries and registrars, and is specifically an effort from the registry PIR who run .org. So the what is DNS abuse question comes up a lot. It is a thing that within the ICANN community and elsewhere, people have spent huge amounts of time and energy arguing and debating, and there is no real consensus. Having said that, registrars and registries have sort of put a stake in the ground relatively recently on a concrete definition that DNS abuse is malware, botnets, farming, and phishing, and spam, but spam only where it serves as a vehicle for those preceding harms. There are some issues with this sort of categorical definition, and we can go into those if you want. The reason we got to that place is, is because it, it was such an amorphous question People were unsure what they should be doing, and so having a sort of clear categorical stake meant that we could try and move forward and getting some action on these issues. So it really comes down to, I, I think one of the interesting things that we have to solve about domain name and domain name registration, this isn't doing, you know, hosting of DNS servers or 
you know, register. It's the registrars who you register your domain name with, who ho who follow that record, who have a a right. They're given a, a a privilege by the ICANN who owns the domain name space, right? So I, in effect, I when I buy a domain name, I'm paying ICANN for it through registrars. Is that correct? Yeah, ICANN, the sort of coordinating body for the industry gets 18 cents off from a registrar for the registration of, of a generic TLD, CC TLD, so country codes don't participate in this fully. Um, and then some amount from registries, but I don't actually know off the top of my head what that is. And so the problem here is that when you register a domain name, your rights to own that domain name are fairly diverse, like they're diffuse. It's not like it's an asset in law necessarily. It's an asset in common, in a sense. You know, I haven't thought too much about that particular question. I think there is some case law on this, but I'm hesitant to go into it because I think I'd be just wildly speculating. I think some people see domain names as property, but you're right. You don't. Do you own it or are you just leasing access to use it? Boy, I bet you'd find a, a bunch of different answers in, in different <laughs> terms of service. Well, it's on one that of those things. It's fact. like um, when uh, when a government gives a telco a right to bury cable in the ground and to exploit it by making bandwidth out of a out of a right of way law, right? And the way that a telco makes money is it goes and buries cable in the ground and then lights it up with some sort of electrical equipment, and then uh, oh, you know, we're off to the races at that point, and. Although they can class that right of way as an asset, that actually has a time limit. That is, telcos don't get an infinite right to own the cable in the ground most of the time. It's usually a 20, 30, 50, 100-year type of an agreement. So, and domain names are conceptually similar in law in the sense that if you don't renew them, your right to own the domain name goes away. So it's a very different way, a different way of it's as an asset class. And when you're accounting for it, you actually have this really interesting discussion around who owns it and how much is it worth. So you're coming up with this idea that the DNS Abuse Institute is starting to act as a focus for misuse of domains, domain names. So you talked about malware and botnet. Where's the, where's the harm? Where's the, where's the problem here? What's the problem? If we've already got a system where I can take down a domain name, why do I need your organization or this, this institute you're establishing? So there's a lot in there. You don't have actually a lot of good options for taking down domain names. From a really high level, you know, DNS abuse where people are using domain names to do bad things and those domain or those bad things are reasonably resolved at the level of DNS and we should maybe talk at some point about you know the tools that registries and registrars actually have. We have, I think, what an economist might call a collective action problem, which is broadly registrars and registries would be better served by collectively coordinating on these abuse issues. But there are a number of sort of disincentives and impediments for that action to take place. And the institute was created by PIR, who run .org, as I think I said, because they saw that collective action problem and thought it was high time that someone should do something about it. And so the Institute exists, you know, if you want to look at it almost crudely to sort of absorb some of those costs, to do the work of solving that collective action problem, to pull that off of registries and registrars 
enable them to do more on these harms than they are currently doing and make that, you know, sort of quick and easy and simple for them to do and make the internet safer. So effectively what you're saying here is one of the challenges, if I understand this correctly, so tell me where I'm wrong, is if we've got a domain name that we identify as part of a malware campaign and let's assume for the sake of the debate that this is unambiguously a malware domain because it's buried in, in a you know, malware sample, which is proven to be a particular thing. The question is, how do you take down this domain name? Who agrees that this domain name can be taken offline? Because when you, because when you get to more ambiguous situations, let's take spam, for example. Spam is ubiquitous and comes from thousands and thousands of different sources. And, you know, the, the challenge here is who determines what is spam and who determines what is good spam and who determines what is bad spam? So, for example, we have organizations like Mail, MailChimp, which are mail gateways. We have AWS's mail, mail send applications. They are often used to send what is very close to spam, but are legitimate organizations sending mail on behalf of other people. So the vast majority of the mail they send would be legitimate, but you don't want to get spam reporting and take them offline either. So I think you've touched on a, on a, a couple things there. Going back to the your sort of malware problem where you've got a, an unambiguously maliciously registered domain, and that's maybe an important component to understand, that there is lots of bad things on the internet, you know, from content harms to technical harms. In the domain or the DNS abuse space, we, we need to understand whether something is deliberately done or whether it's a harm coming from like a compromised website because you're... Uh, mitigation responses in those circumstances could and should probably be different in that you want to not take a business offline because they're running an old WordPress uh, and cripple them, you know, or it's, you know, it's a service, you know, providing something important somewhere to some people. Taking them offline because their their WordPress is out of date is, is presents some problems. It might be the right answer. Or it's an enterprise website that's been compromised and it's now being used to launch a malware attack. You don't want to take a company down type of thing. Precisely. And and this is sort of one of the reasons why acting at the DNS is is difficult. Registries and registrars really have a single tool for mitigating abuse once it's already occurring. And that is really just to turn a domain name off. And doing so for your spam example is obviously problematic because it could be, you know, a whole email service that you would be, you know, people use Gmail for a spam all the time. Sorry, Google. You wouldn't turn off, you know, gmail.com uh, for that purpose. Going back again to the malware piece, it, it, this is where it's kind of Interesting. So, uh, uh, I mean, I think all of this is interesting. It's my job. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have taken it if I didn't think it was an interesting problem space. Sure. So someone will send, someone will find malware somehow, you know, it ends up in their inbox by a, a spam or something like that, directing them there. And they can submit a, an abuse report to a registrar. And the registrar is going to get that abuse report and have to go and make some determination if that harm is real. There is no real, you know, there's no, you know, there's a number of third parties that I think will try and tell you if that is malware or not. You know, there's lots of, you know, you could run it through some APIs, what have you. But ultimately, it's it's up to that registrar to make a decision whether they think that harm is appropriate for them to take down or not. And that's that's difficult for them because if you're a registrar and your business is built around 
registering domain names for 10 bucks a month, sorry, 10 bucks a year, 15 bucks a year, whatever it is, right? And the people who come to you and say, you need to take this domain name down, you are potentially opening yourself up to liabilities from even legal liabilities. If you take a domain name down on the basis of somebody reporting something, you could be in serious trouble as a, as a registrar. That's correct. You know, I, I don't think it's a crazy barrier to get over. You know, the, the evidence that you might require to make a reasonable decision that something is causing a harm where taking the domain offline is an appropriate thing to do, I don't think it's an absurd barrier to cross. But it is a barrier. You know, you people do need to consider the liabilities that they've got. And then to do that at scale is a real problem. You know, if you've got a couple million names, uh, although maybe million is, there's not actually all that many registrars. I think there's 40 or so with more than a million names. You know, you're, you're going to get a lot of abuse complaints every day. And this is one of the things the Institute is really looking at solving. A tiny fraction of them are unique and appropriately evidenced and actually something you can deal with. And so you know, registrars spend this huge amounts of time and effort triaging these horrible abuse cues filled with garbage to then take a relatively risky decision. And so, you know, to the extent that that is common across the entire industry, that's really something that I think the Institute can try and help clean up and solve. So you could build some collective, you know, or common agreed bullet points to decide if a domain name is being abused. And that could then form a reasonable position for them to say, yes, this is a clear case of abuse. We can take this domain offline if anybody was to request it. Yeah, I think that's right. There is, and this is the sort of best practices that are beginning to be developed within the registry and registrar community. And something the Institute is going to be working on is like, just really what is that list of evidence that you would reasonably need to make an appropriate decision on a domain name? And it's not rocket science. You know, you've got a link to some screenshots you know, you can see that the domain name has like it's a bank fish or something and it's, you know, got the name of the a bank and a dash login or something. There are going to be pieces that are, you know, for a malicious registration will hopefully make it obvious. It's not always the case. It's when it, like, yeah, there's a domain name and it's misspelled, you know, the old days of PayPal with a four for A's and things like that. Oh, yeah. Those are not the old days. Those days are still pretty common, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. It's always struck me as to why... I mean, the immediate reaction to that is why haven't the registrars done something about this by now? In theory, it's it's self-interest for them to be able to police the industry that they operate in and to reduce the collective harms that their product creates to the market. And yet it seems like most of them just sort of want to pretend it's not a problem and it's not my problem and I can't be bothered and I'm not making any money out of it. Why am I even bothering? Greg, I think that's a real glass half empty way of viewing the <laughs> domain registration industry. <laughs> you know, it, there is certainly some of that. I think there are, again, maybe from a macro level, it's an industry of scale. You know, you've got to have lots of names to make it make sense. And so, you know, tiny margins on these things. If you look at the sort of retail registrars, they're making very little money per name. And you, if, if you ever have to look at that name for whatever compliance or abuse reason, you're never making money. Yeah. Well, the flip side here is they're not doing anything anyway. So I don't, 
I don't think that's entirely fair. I would well, say they're that- not doing anything about abuse today. That's what we're talking about. All they're basically sure. doing is making an entry in a database and pointing it at somebody. Everything's online. The customer has to do all the hard work with registering the domain name and providing a credit card. How hard can it be? Well, it's probably harder than you think. There's a lot of regulatory nonsense. Uh, sorry, I can. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of regulatory issues that come with running a domain registrar. You know, you're trying to connect to not just tens, but potentially hundreds, maybe even thousands of different registries and the changes that they might be introducing to your system. You know, as the industry matures, there's a lot of um, acquisition that's happening as well, too. And so registrars keep buying each other. Now you're trying to integrate platforms and harmonize processes. And so it's a mess. But I would say that most registrars, many registrars anyway, are actually pretty good and very responsive on abuse. There are some who are clearly not, and we need to, you know, reach out to them. But I haven't quite figured out exactly how this works. Doing business with abusive domain names, I think, is exceptionally difficult. Most registrars will make their money not off an initial registration, but over the life of a domain name where you can expect it to renew for three, five, 10 years. So you'll sell it for cheap and then know that you're going to make that money back in the long run. Abusive domains don't renew. That's a standard funding model though. That's not new. That's the whole technology funding model that we see today. People spend upfront, they spend vast amounts of money building a product and then expect to make it up at scale, sell it cheap, but sell it in bulk. That's so their business isn't special. I, I agree. I, I, I 100% agree with you. I'm just saying why it's not a model, like why you can't throw all registrars under the bus of they're abusive because they've built a business that way and abusive domains don't make money. You know, they're, they're going to get turned off real quickly. Those customers are never going to uh, renew. And then you end up with lots of stolen credit cards involved in cybercrime. And then your chargebacks are a real problem. And, you know, that will you get banned by your payment processor and, and your registrars toast very quickly. So I, by and large, people are, are not bad at this. There is still, and hear me very clearly say, lots of room to get better. And maybe that's, that's a, a segue to talk about the ways to get better, because I think this is kind of interesting. We paused this discussion to think about open source network operating systems. And if you just went, nope, because I know some of you did, I'm guessing that's because you're thinking open source is for hobbyists and not grown-up network engineers with actual serious networks to support. And if that's where you're at, uh, you're making bad assumptions about what open source is all about. So consider Sonic, developed and supported by several vendors, including sponsor Dell Technologies. With Sonic, you can build a network that runs just the features you need and leaves the monolith behind. And to me, that means flexibility in design and a lowering of operational risk. Sonic is based on Linux and a containerized architecture, like any modern OS, right? You you can stand up the containers with the network functions you need and nothing extra running in the background. And then with that architectural model underpinning the network, you can design for growth. You can have a lean, mean network operating system that grows as you do, including up to hyperscale size. This also means that if you need to get into fancier functionality, like you might need to do at the edge with a bunch of fancy packet processing, Sonic lets you do that too. Lean and mean in the core and fancy at the edge if you want while still running a common NOS. 
If you are building out that fancy edge, maybe you're offloading to SmartNICs, aka data processing units or DPUs that accelerate specific network functions. Sonic can play here as well. Well, how, how does that work? Sonic's modularity and use of P4 makes it as flexible and functional as you need for your fancy edge DPUs. And, and, and the point here, Sonic is open source, but it is a serious network operating system with roles to play in the data center, cloud networking, and edge computing. It works with the stupid fast forwarding silicon you're going to find in big iron switches and in SmartNICs doing really complex packet processing, but it's all Sonic. So that gives you some operational consistency backed by not only the open source community, but also Dell Technologies. So take a look at Open Source Sonic, figure out the roles that it can play in your enterprise network infrastructure, again, backed by Dell Technologies. Visit DellTechnologies.com slash networking to find out more. One more time, that's DellTechnologies.com slash networking. And if you do talk to the folks at Dell about Sonic, let them know you heard about it on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. And now back to today's episode. Yeah, I, I wanted to spell out the challenges here because I don't think it's necessarily visible to people to understand how the registrars work and the business operations that they have. I mean, at the end of the day, you take a domain name, you put some entries in a database. I do all the work to register the domain name and all they have to do is take my money and process the charge. And then every, you know, every year or two or three or five, they come back and tell me to renew it. And if, and I'm kind of stuck, they got generate, you know, it's not like I'm going to let the domain name go unless I'm truly doing nothing. And even if I do let it go, someone's going to run along and buy it speculatively anyway. So they get guaranteed to make money infinitum. It's not, they, they need to be making their market better. And, I, and I'm sort of surprised that we haven't had them collectively act before. So, yeah. So what can we do to do something about that? Well, so I, I you know, this is, hey, we're creating an institute. You want to come run it? And uh, we're going to go try and solve this problem of DNS abuse. So I, I, I have spent a good chunk of this year sort of turning this problem over in my mind to, to figure out where the ways that the Institute can make an impact, you know, and, and not just for the sake of the Institute, but actually, you know, reducing harms online, making people a little bit safer. And the place I got to is, is maybe lends a little credence to your glass half empty, which is the, there are two like fundamental ways to deal with abuse. You can, try and prevent it from happening in the first place. And so that would be identifying malicious registrations before they're completed. So that's one type. And then the other type is going to be uh, retroactive, and that's mitigating abuse after it's happened. Um, and that requires being notified of it and being able to look at the evidence and make a decision after the fact. So boy, in the long term, I think preventative is the way to go. And that is where your, you know, we talked about some of the attributes of a harmful domain name, you know, especially things like phishing, where you can identify them and in a registration process, figure out that maybe you need to prevent that domain name from resolving for some period of time. You maybe want to do some more checking on who the customer is, you know, extra validation on the customer, the credit card they're using to pay for it could go into a manual review queue. So you've got some options when you're flagging domain names that are potentially harmful. And there already are a couple of um, you know, machine learning algorithms that will make this identification for you. And it's not binary, of course, you're getting a score back. Um, and so you can adjust your thresholds and your appropriate responses. 
And that I think is all really good and interesting. The problem with that is that it requires registrars or registries to write and or integrate code. And that code's existence is really just to introduce friction into a registration process, which is how they make their money. And so it becomes, you know, and no one's probably super enthusiastic about doing that. Well, I guess from if I was a registrar, I wouldn't want to refuse people registering domain names. If I was to do this proactively and have some sort of list that I could consult of people who are not allowed to be registering domain names. But at the end of the day, criminal actors are going to be working hard to hide, right? They're not going to be easily detected. Now, that said, Krebs also knows and is able to fingerprint uh, various threat actors just by their DNS footprints. So it can be done and the information does exist. But I also agree with you that getting the large number of registrars to agree a format to proactively identify malicious domain registrations especially when they haven't had this regulations. The registrars operate in a fairly loosely regulated business. They don't have many obligations or responsibilities to the customer, and they only have a few obligations back to ICANN. So getting them to start coming into line and acting like adults is actually going to be an incredibly uphill, a tough uphill battle. Yeah. So I'll tell you about how, I, how I'm thinking about solving that uphill battle. But the, the whole... So domain registration industry is for generic TLDs, again, not CC TLDs, is really managed via contracts. Registrars and registries have a contract with ICANN to operate. You know, the obligations, like the contractual obligations on abuse for registrars come out of the 2013 Registrar Accreditation Agreement, and registries have something called the Registry Agreement, the RA and the RAA. And... Yeah, that those are the things that spell out what registries and registrars have to do, you know, with respect to obligations with ICANN, you know, around accepting and acting on reports of abuse. And there is a relatively recent ICANN audit of registries and registrars, and it it you know highlights some of the ways that those contracts I think are really clunky at at coming at solving these problems. I'm not necessarily convinced that renegotiating those contracts is going to be a timely or effective manner on abuse. And that's one of the reasons that the Institute exists. So if we're going to go and try and incentivize registrars to, to go do stuff, you know, if you're me and you're running an Institute and you want, you know, a cleaner DNS and you think that, boy, getting a bunch of people to write code to slow down their registration process is a problem where you end up getting to or where I ended up getting to and I think is pretty reasonable is that there's lots of work that can be done on the mitigation process after an abuse is discovered. So we can get better and faster at identifying abuse. We can get better reports of abuse to registries and registrars. And we can ensure that those reports have everything they would need to make a reasonable decision in a timely fashion. And then there's sort of one other piece of that, which is, boy, reports of abuse are, I was sort of talking about this earlier, garbage. They're filled with crap. And, you know, people, people, lots of people think they're experts on abuse online and they pummel registrars and registries with duplicative nonsense that they can't do anything about. Totally unevidenced. You know, this yeah. domain name is bad. 
Uh, Facebook.com is a pretty bad domain name for a certain large number of people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think they just put out a report. They put like Facebook a report this week that like, like one in three children is harmed by Instagram or something. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I mean, poorly you know, paraphrasing whatever that was. The but, general, yeah. the gen most research indicates that Facebook is a net negative, and in theory, people could lodge a domain takedown on that on the basis of harms caused. Equally, Facebook is a multi-billion-dollar company that's got a lot of lawyers. Is another angle. And equally, Facebook has a right to exist even though it's a spammer. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm -hmm. So one of the key initiatives that the Institute is working on is building what we call the centralized abuse reporting tool. And, and this is going to be like essentially a one-stop shop for people who have found uh, some example of DNS abuse, farming, fishing, malware, botnets. And you don't need to know who the registrar is you just need to put in the URL. It's going to do that figure out piece for you. It's going to tell you for that particular type of harm, what evidence is typically required. And then it's going to enrich that abuse complaint with, you know, run that URL through a variety of APIs to get back stuff from like, say, virus total or some of the reputation block lists and or just the, you know, useful domain information, how new is it, et cetera, and then get that to the right competency place. check, right? If if this domain name is registered as bad in a wide range of open source sources, there's a fair chance that there is something wrong. Yes. So broadly speaking, I think that's largely true. The the RBLs is a, a sorry, reputation block list, RBLs, I, presumably your audience is well familiar with those things. They're like the only good source right now of abuse information. And they're not great in many respects. They are produced primarily for network protection, you know, and the harm of a false positive in RBL for most people is like maybe your people on your network can't get to a website. And like, that's annoying, but it's not going to get you sued, you know, for a registrar or a registry to take action on an unevidenced domain name in an RBL introduces some liability. So they're just like, they're not produced for mitigation. And so we have this real disconnect between the only good source of information and the people trying to use that for action. And that's a sort of another big problem space I think we need to do some more thinking about to get tooling for the people who want to mitigate abuse in a you know quick, timely fashion. And then there's, you know, there's there's like cross-population or pollination issues with RBLs where they, you might be saying, oh, look, this domain name is on four different ones. It's got to be super bad, but it turns out that the primary source for each of those is the same place. And so you've, you've taken as a signal something that's really just noise. They've all pulled it from somewhere else because they agglomerate and cross-share data between them. And then, of you course, if the Institute was to make a recommendation on the basis of that. But the ultimate decision is going to rest with the registrar because it's their responsibility and they're, in a sense, they own that domain name is their property, even though they lease it to the customer, in a sense. That's not a legal definition, but they, they have a domain name that they currently have registered and they rent it to the customer for, you know, $15 a year. Yep. So, And so w w we're not trying to, the Institute anyways, is not trying to make those choices for registrars for them. What we are trying to be able to do is to give them all of the information that they might need to make that choice quickly and easily for themselves. And so you have become the first step in that path. Now, I see that 
that's not unreasonable. In a sense, it's like you would be able to become a focal point for for people to go and say this domain is abusive. You would require them to submit certain evidence and it would be consistently submitted to some extent. You would validate, you'd say like, show me the domain name, show me the evidence that it's being abused and that sort of stuff. And then you apply some basic competency checks to that, to look up some RBLs, maybe even over time you could build up enough money to buy some threat intelligence feeds or build relationships with threat intelligence vendors to cross, uh, you know, cross verify. But all of that also sounds like something that DNS registrars should be doing. I would have thought they were doing that. You know, we talked a little bit about RBLs and their usefulness for mitigation already. And so there is, I think, some impediments for them to be consuming those RBLs and acting on them. Right now, many of them are just accepting abuse complaints as they come in the door through their abuse reporting channels and they're doing the investigations and acting on them. And and that's most of it. You know, to the extent that we can get to the point where they have these uh, preventative tools, that's very exciting. You know, I think that makes a material difference in, in reducing harms. Getting them to be quick and more proactive, I think, is going to be useful too. Yeah, and I think also what you're doing will become a focus for governments. So they'll be able to look at you and say like, well, there are certain domains which are known to be abusive and law enforcement can start direct requests to you instead of to the registrars. Is that going to be an issue or are you going to? Yeah, my hunch is not, if only because, or at least... They will be able to send, you know, and, you know, the, the way I imagine this tool we're building right now is that anyone could use it. So to the extent that law enforcement has abusive domains they, they want to submit, they would be free to do so. Where they're trying to serve like due process, they've got a court order. I think by law, in most circumstances, they would have to go directly to the registry or registrar. Yeah. Well, provided it's in their jurisdiction. Yeah, the jurisdictional thing is another whole quagmire that, you know, we're trying to get away from in, in that we're just going to try and provide everybody the information that could be useful. But And some best practices and some rough guidelines on what to expect. And then that, that will have its own imp- impact over time because that will eventually be brought into a court of law and saying, did you meet these best practice guidelines? And if they didn't, they then become liable or culpable. That's an interesting idea that we would ultimately build up a practice strong enough that that, that might become a standard in that sense. Well, that's what happens with uh, ITF, you know, best current practice. You can say they become active in litigations because you can go and say, well, this is the published best practice. Why did you deviate from this? And then it becomes a discussion between experts as to whether your lack of competency in not meeting current practices or best practices is a viable excuse. That's pretty spicy. Yep. Depends on how, you know, how much money is available for experts and the seriousness of the case, but there is a burden. And if you create those expectations, you create a burden of evidence and a burden of responsibility on them to meet the guidelines. And this, what I like about the DNS Abuse Institute particularly is it does what I call raise the floor. When I talk about general purpose societal benefits, there's there's fundamentally two approaches to do it. One way is to raise the ceiling so that companies can do better. And the other way is to raise the floor so that the worst companies are forced, are prevented from doing the worst things. And th- what I like about this is you're effectively leading into lifting the floor and saying, you need to comply with this generally accepted best practice that most registrars are following. And if most of the good registrars are getting on board with the DNS Abuse Institute and following it, it 
draws the ones who aren't following it into meeting those guidelines. And that generally lifts the floor of registrars to start being better actors in the ecosystem. So that relates to, I think, another initiative that we're working on, which is really when we talk about good and bad registrars and registries, we're really speaking anecdotally. There is not a lot of good evidence on who's doing, like where DNS abuse is happening and who it's happening to. You know, the RBLs, uh, some of them, you know, Spam House has some reports, but, you know, they see a subset of harms and view them in very particular ways that are definitely not transparent because that's where some of their, you know, secret sauce lives. ICANN itself as an organization produces what they call the DAR reports, domain abuse activity reports that are technically okay, but like really what I would say thin on transparency. You can't see what's happening at the individual TLD yeah. uh, or registrar level. They all get so, wrapped up in commercial incompetence. The, the yeah. registrars say this is a commercial transaction. We don't want to air. We don't want transparency. We don't want people knowing about our business. Now there's an angle there then that they don't want people knowing what their costs are or they don't want people getting a competitive advantage and having transparency for a commercial transaction. But equally, they have a responsibility to customers and to society at large. And trans- some transparency is should be expected, in my opinion. So this is a, a, what we're going to try and tackle, is we're going to try and build a sort of more transparent, more robust a DNS abuse intelligence system. And so it's really going to look at, you know, where are these harms at the TLD level, at the registrar level, and not just looking at, did the harms exist? You need to begin looking at things like, did they persist? So, you know, criminal gangs might be focusing on a registrar for some particular reason, and but it turns out that registrar is acting as quickly as they possibly can. And so you want to be able to see that and recognize that they're, you know, doing a really good job at mitigating this abuse as it comes in the door. Well, they're acting as quickly as they say they possibly can, which is not necessarily all that fast. Well, I mean... Or well-funded or properly, you know, not focused on by the business itself because the business is busy trying to do the, you know, do the least amount of work for the maximum amount of profit. I mean... You say that like that is particular to registrars, but that, <laughs> no, <laughs> that, that's every company, right? Yeah, that's that's right, just yeah. how capitalism works. Yeah, and the challenge here is that for most capitalism, they don't have to deliver a societal good, and that is the challenge of the internet. Is the internet is uh, is a thing, right? It's 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 something that has benefit to a very large number of people, and registrars don't seem to have embraced the idea that there is some engagement with the community that they have and they just stand back and say, it's not my problem. They don't do much for their customers. It's all on the customers to make to take over and then, you know, the DNS providers do a lot of the work associated with, you know, maintaining domain names and so forth. So I don't feel generally that registrars are doing something for me. Like the value I get from registrars is not, is not perceivable. So a couple thoughts from that. One is, I think, registrars, and you hear more from registrars than you do the individual registries. And so, I, and also, sort of broadly speaking, most abuse should be dealt with at the registrar, not the registries. So I tend to focus on registrars a bit. But they have like a marketing problem. There are lots of them spending 
plenty of money mitigating abuse and coming up with tools and responding to abuse complaints, you know, building APIs to accept abuse complaints at scale, this sort of thing. They just are, are, are largely terrible at telling people about it. I spent four years at my previous job about as in charge of the registrar industry as, as one can reasonably get. And it, it was, you know, people would just like offhand say that they were doing these things. And it's like, no, we need to tell everyone. It's important that the world understand just how much, you know, effort is going into these things. On another point you were making, though, about the sort of the DNS and the Internet, you know, the ICANN, registries, registrars. This is the really the only bit of Internet infrastructure that has sort of any global regulation. And so it's a really interesting and fun space to work and participate because you're sort of at this crazy nexus of how the whole internet works. And it's pretty fun. I, I got to say, it's a, it's a, it's <laughs> a super compelling. The fact that the internet works at all remains a, a miracle of collective action. It, it is, you know, you have to have, you have to agree that the IP packet is what you want to send. Everybody agrees to use the same protocols. We agree that the routing information is sent over BGP. BGP is is the least best choice for sending pathing data, but it works and it scales pretty well. And then over the top of that, we have DNS, which allows you to locate the IP address. The fact that it works at all is is something of a modern miracle. And the fact that it works with so little action, and this is this is where I come back to this collective, this responsibility to society, because the, 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 the all of us who run networks, and especially those of us who run service provider networks and DNS servers, understand that we have a commitment to the people at large as well as to the customers directly that there is some common good achieved from this and a lot of people who work in those backbones and you know they ring each other at two o'clock in the morning to say but i need help your system's gone down and that's how things get fixed yeah and i do think that exists within the dns industry too it's just it's maybe quieter and boy they're less good at, at sharing the wins yes yeah well true it's a tough. It's a tough issue. I, I mean, I must say, I think that you've got a tough job ahead, getting in between the inter interstices of the industry and finding a way to retrofit something that perhaps should have been there from the beginning. It's going to be a tough job. It's certainly not going to be easy. You know, I've had a few people tell me I'm nuts to try and take this on. They might well be right. You know, as I was thinking about the initiatives that the the institute can you know, could do and be reasonably successful at and make a real difference to the internet, it, it really comes down to a certain extent. You, you know, I was, I was talking about offloading costs from registries and registrars to the Institute. I think there's a play here on, you know, the business self-interest of these companies that they can see we're providing real value and it makes real sense to adopt some of the tools, technologies, and best practices that we'll be offering. And that... And they you know, should be able to present that to customers and say, we comply with the DNS Abuse Institute for takedowns. And wow, wow, man, to have that. You know, and customers should be asking, you know, what is your abuse takedown policy? What are your procedures? Can you explain them to me? What would happen if somebody reported my domain name for takedown? Would you take it down? If I get to that level of recognition, you know, in the general public, I am hiring a marching band to go around <laughs> my block. You won't, but... What I would like to see is registrars taking something like this on board, at, at very least as a as a way of agreeing what is abuse, as you say, malware, botnet, farming, phishing, uh, and for a fairly rapid process for identifying and taking them down 
when there is some sort of collective agreement that these are the worst of the worst. And that raises the floor. And over time, I believe that you could iterate through and raise the floor and the world gets a little bit better. Yeah, there's lots of, you know, there's sort of endless work to be done. One of the, the floor is interesting from an economics perspective too, in that, and no one has done this yet. It's on my list of things to do, which is really do some research around the relationship between retail price and abuse. Because 100% there is one that you, the, if you're going to offer domains at or below cost, um, and this applies to registries as well as registrars because they're setting the wholesale cost and not picking up the corresponding harms that are being produced by low cost domains. And for sure, there is some level of phishing or malware that, you know, buying a domain name to help distribute, it stops being economically feasible at a certain cost, you know, to make money in those sort of criminal endeavors. And to the extent that we can figure out what that is, and of course, it's not going to be one number, it's not going to be like, well, you've got to have it more than $11 a year. You know, there'll, of course, be subtleties in there. But boy, I think we can we can figure out some sort of broad strokes about, you know, abuse is going to increase after these thresholds by this amount. And if you're going to begin operating in that sort of cost space, you need to really make sure that you've also dialed up correspondingly your anti-abuse efforts. Well, Graham, I wish you the best. Maybe you can come back to us in a year or two and let us know what the postmortem looked like, whether you got over the hump or not. If you don't mind the noise of the marching band in the background. <laughs> well, on that note, if you'd like to find out more, head on over to the dnsabuseinstitute.org. The DNS Abuse Institute is affiliated with the Public Internet Registry, which is part, which is the uh, custodian of the .org uh, domain name, and they are generally perceived as being acting in the best interests of the internet at heart. So I wish you. Uh, well, and uh, he is hoping that the registrars start acting in a way that respects their customers and the goods that they deliver to society at large in such a way. That is my opinion, uh, and I'll use that as part of the wrap-up. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Graham. Is there anywhere else that people can find you on the internet? Your Twitter, LinkedIn? Twitter and LinkedIn are both um, perfectly good options. I think I'm the only Graham Bunton in the world, so feel free to give me a Google and you'll find me pretty quick. Thanks so much to Graham for coming on the show today. You can find show notes with some links to some articles in the source site for this. Uh, and as always, if you visit packetpushes.net, you can also discover our thousands of other episodes across our podcast network for networking infrastructure professionals, along with our community blog. Follow us on the Twitters, find us on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook as well, even. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>